0: Hewson, I am so incredibly happy to finally get a chance to talk to you after all these years. I've always wanted to have a little chat. And Facebook has allowed us to communicate a little bit. But now here you are in the flesh. All that time that I spent in England and I never got a chance to meet you, which is a tragedy of epic proportions.
1: <laughs> I thought you were Aridell when I was. You know, no. that's
0: that's possible. And, but I was, I was only working there for a short period of time. Yeah. I, I did a few jingles there. Mm,
1: and, yeah, me but, too.
0: But not, yeah, but not as many as I would like to have uh, from the lucrative point of view. Of course. <laughs> it's like John Altman. I, I only met him because I was very close friends with uh, Mitch Dalton.
1: And, okay, yeah
0: And so you know we finally met at one of Mitch's sessions and but we never got a chance to spend much time together because we he'd be walking out of a studio date for Trevor Horn and I'd be walking into a studio date. So yeah. that, that went on for years and we actually only got to know each other uh, better when I was uh, when I was here. Although
1: I did interview him for my book oh yes I'm in there somewhere I I think I've got a couple of lines
0: well in fact not only have you got a couple of lines it you're mentioned because of a subject I really want to talk with you about now McCartney was was you've got a long relationship with him and I want to talk about that but I really want to talk about this one thing of the long and winding road the story is that he was totally upset and he hated the fact that there were you know he wanted the whole thing to be nude and naked and all that business and and yet in my book what i say is wait a minute paul mccartney used richard hewson on a lot of his stuff he loved his writing as he quite Mm -hmm. reasonably should love your writing
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: and and so he the fact of the long and winding road that he was upset with I say in the book is the fact that it was done without his consultation without his permission not because he disliked the arrangement the notes
1: it was Alan Klein wasn't it that came and hired Phil Spector to clean up as he called it the album right and uh, Phil wanted in his usual way a massive orchestra which I love because I like big orchestras great Why fun not? to conduct a big orchestra Why so not? I, I not being aware at all that Paul wasn't involved in it or didn't even know about it, I got on with the job, you know. It was a quick job. It was uh, it was called in the evening and pre- had to be ready with it by one o'clock the next day, which may, meant a long right. night. Then I just assumed that everything's cool and Paul was fine about it. And in I went, did the thing. Didn't think any more about it. As, as you well know, you go away from an arranging session, You don't hear anymore until the record comes out or something. You get on with yes. the next job and whatever it was. So I heard no more until this Shit hit the fan, as it were. And yes. wrote the letter saying never told the oh, went mad and crazy. But he, he didn't talk to me about it at all. So you
0: you never talked about to him about it afterwards? No, we
1: we have met we worked again a few times after that and he never said a thing. I never said a thing. I just left it to But them I mean, to,
0: you you guys were were old friends, really, old oh, yeah to, Yeah, you yeah, know, I mean yeah, you'd known yeah. each other for, for years and years before that. That's and right. so yes, I, it was. What I've always said with people is that his, his, uh, he was upset the fact that it all went on behind his back without mm. his consultation, not because you had written anything bad. In fact, I've got to say that arrangement to me is one of the most wonderful pop arrangements because you do something which is really, you know, close to insanity. and <laughs> And I say that because it's not insane, but you've got this... Beautiful line that you have the strings do. Yeah. Now <laughs> yeah, good, it's good. the yeah, thing yeah, is, man, good. that is going on mm. while mm. he's singing.
1: Yeah. And yeah. Now
0: I have always had a principle, which is mm. stay out of the goddamn way of the singer as much as <laughs> possible. And when I don't do it, the singer gets really pissed off. Yeah. It yeah, says, yeah. Hey, it's hard for me to sing over that. You know. Yeah up a bit. But you, I guess because Paul wasn't involved in the thing, were able to write this thing. And it's a brilliant composition on its own, because what I particularly love about that line is it, you play the motif, bah, 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 bah. Yeah, right. and then yeah, yeah. you manage to do to use a very elegant way to go up the octave with it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, well, very nicely put, very well analyzed. But, in, uh, I mean, I did that because uh, Phil Spector said, uh, can you put something in the second middle eight? Because there was nothing. There was no vocal in the middle eight. Right. So what I did was I put it in there, originally left it out in the first middle eight, but right. then I thought, as I remember, I think I thought, um, wait a minute, it's probably it needs it could work behind the voice, which yes. it did. Yes. And um, that's that's why it's there. I mean, I'm guilty of what a lot, probably a lot of uh, arrangers are sometimes overdoing it. Like, but my my hero, you see, was Nelson Riddle. He of was he, to me was my God and still is. I still listen to only the lonely, the Frank Sinatra and album. so do I'm I. listening to it day I listened to it last night and I've listened to it for 50 years yes and I still hear things that are great but Absolutely. He, now Nelson Riddle would put things behind the vocal that you might not think would work but he did he did and maybe that's stuck with me a bit I don't know but yes in, in this case well, it
0: worked also I think you in quite a few of your arrangements um you do this I mean in true love ways certainly for for Cliff Richard and you and quite a few of your other arrangements you are unashamedly romantic and <laughs> okay. and and in romantic not in the sense of the romantic classical composers but in the sense of sort of 50s hollywood film mm-hmm. score mm-hmm. and you know you and I are a similar mm-hmm. age and the thing is we're we were both influenced by hearing all that nelson riddle Billy mm. May, uh, you mm. know all those. Robert Farnon. I'm sure you're a big yeah, sure, fan. Sure, of, sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah.
0: And so we. I mean, I've always tried to throw that into as many of my arrangements as I can, if it's appropriate. Mm. And yeah. uh, and so you you have a lot of stuff that's kind of like that. But I I've always found that that I don't know why that line works with the vocal it of course Mm -hmm. it's a it's a wonderful piece of music without the vocal in fact you could have written a whole orchestral piece based on that one line and you you should but 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 it shouldn't work with the vocal in in Mm -hmm. terms of the rules of counterpoint Mm -hmm. and you're a classical guy and I'm not I never studied classical Uh, but but it does work which is just a you know it's it's always been a great thing to my students I always pointed out as something look here are the rules of counterpoint. Now, here's a line which is absolutely brilliant. It goes against all the rules of counterpoint, and right. yet it works fantastically.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a lucky, probably one of those things a lucky, lucky yeah. break. Just, um, but uh, again, it's um, something that always stuck in my mind from college. It's the logic of the line, not necessarily the clash of the notes. It's the logic exactly. of the line, and if the two lines are logical in their own right they will work together, even though you, technically they may not be correct.
0: Now that we've gotten some of my sort of uh, fan fan thing out of the way of, of, of your work, it's interesting that you and I have both worked for Paul McCartney mm-hmm. and we both had the experience of working with him. So my question to you is when, when I started, started working with him, which was 1986, Mm-hmm. Um, it was on this project called the Cold Cuts Project, and I was he had he had asked me to come and re- reproduce, arrange, get these tracks finished. And uh, when I went in to uh, work with him, I was told by his manager Alan Crowder, who was a very nice chap. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, "Whatever you do, two rules. Number one, don't mention John Lennon." at all because he doesn't like to talk about the beatles and i said okay and number two he is very very autocratic so do exactly what he says he you know you'll you'll have to be very careful that he very controlling well when i went in to work with him he was anything but controlling he, he gave me complete freedom as I've read that he gave you complete freedom whenever Absolutely. you worked with him. Well, tell yeah. me a little bit about your working experience with Mr. McCartney.
1: Well, the first uh, thing I did would have been shortly after I um, came out of college, actually, was when he discovered Mary Hopkin, the folk singer, uh, yeah. on Opportunity Knox. And it, we had a mutual friend in Peter Asher. Who went right. And uh, we had a little band together. He, Peter was a bass player and I was... There's another actor who's still around called Nigel Antiu who was a brilliant drummer. And uh, we used to write, rehearse around at Peter's house. And of course, Paul McCartney was going out with Jane Asher at the time. This is, we're talking 1967, eight, uh, around there. So obviously I got the contract through through Peter. And then when he, he, he discovered Mary Hopkin um, as a folk singer, he discovered this folk song, which was a, a those were the days, a Russian folk song that Gene Raskin eventually wrote, wrote the lyric for, otherwise I could have copped the role to being an out-of-copyright, <laughs> arranger of an out-of-copyright tune. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, so he, bit, he said, Peter, I need a ranger for this, but I don't want an ordinary pop arranger. I want somebody, you know, left field, not necessarily into pop music, which I wasn't. I was a jazz head, total jazz head, jazz guitar player, mm-hmm. as, as you were. And... Um, and i'd had just come out of college so i knew about orchestration so peter said why don't you try richard because he you know he's never done a pop record before um why give him a go so it came to me paul gave me the tape of the of the thing and and he wanted the whole thing done live which we did uh so i just treated it as as a composition almost you know not not my tune but i just wrote something that i'd learned about uh, orchestration and I'd, and that sembelon so that well that was the one thing input he did the chamber at the beginning dun, 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 yes right great. Right. that um he had heard this instrument and he thought <clears throat> i'd love to have that on a tune and he, he put that in which was a good starting point so we got that Yes, and i knew the only sembelon player in the country who was my actual percussion teacher at college nice which was quite how do you say he got a gig ensemble <laughs> um, and that's how that came about but i just wrote sort of what i would have written for anything an orchestral backing for mary hopkin and the chamberlain um but but that was as far as he uh, had any advice to me uh, on the arrangement and out it came as it did but a lot of people said well that's not really a pop record it's, it's more like a european you know folk yes. tune yes. done with an orchestra yes Which it was mm. yes
0: yeah i'm really asking about your actual working relationship with him over the years how much is he easygoing? i mean with me i've got to say he couldn't have possibly been more easygoing, and yeah, and yeah. and great you know great man and if he wanted to have yeah. an idea he'd say well how about if we do yeah. that but there was no tension mm-hmm. or anything with yeah. me i mean how was he with you
1: absolutely the same i mean eventually we uh, after i can't remember which came first i thought i, I orchestrated ram before it came out Right under the name of Percy Thrillington. Yes, which, exactly. Now, now that was he just handed the the raw record to me, his, his finished album before yes. it was released, and said, Can you make an orchestra orchestral version? Don't you can use voices but no words. So that, that's why we had a choir uh, yes. But when it came to the recording, absolutely, as you say, he would make a gentle suggestion, but never a dramatic change of anything. He right. would accept what I wrote. Um, right. And that's, that's the, my experience of all the things I ever did with him. You know, he would suggest maybe a bit less of the piano, a bit more of this, whatever it might be, yes. uh, but w- would never make a dramatic change in any of the actual arranging. Uh, yes.
0: So with the Thrillington album, which I find very uh, charming, how did you record it? In other words, it sounds like it was recorded relatively live. I don't know if you recorded rhythm sections first and then the orchestration.
1: Yeah, we did. We did with we did rhythm sections in the morning, strings and brass and stuff in the afternoon. And this um, was that was basically... Just, basically, I think, um, I don't know, perhaps to do the whole thing live might have been quite a chore to do it in 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 one session it, that's just the way it, it was done back in the day we quite often did things like that I'm pretty sure you did to sure. do rhythm of the morning strings in the afternoon sure, really exactly exactly and it was some um, good old Clem Cattini and Herbie Flowers and and even um, uh, I was
0: going to say that it sounded like Clem and Herbie and I then here yeah, you it was. confirmed yeah. it yeah
1: because
0: you know of course listening on youtube and looking at it there's no credits or anything and basic and i also have to say you barely get a credit which is kind of weird because it says (laughs) you know it says the artist is paul mccartney this is paul mccartney but you know you get a tiny credit somewhere but it's really you've done absolutely everything on the record
1: true i always thought um That was slightly a mistake, actually. Him doing the record and calling it this fictitious band lead, Percy Thrillington, um, and then sort of trying to create a character, putting adverts in the Evening Standard and all that sort of stuff. Percy is dining at the Waldorf tonight, all that sort of thing. I think it sort of almost, because everybody knew it wasn't Percy Thrillington, but they didn't know who it was and they didn't take much notice of the fact that, that I'd done it. Now, I wasn't worried about that, but it just thought if he'd put it under his name, if he'd right. said this is um, such and such, the, the Ram instrumental album produced by Paul McCartney, it would have done a lot better, I think. Because yes. nobody took that Percy Tim thing seriously. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, that's true. But I mean, and also, I mean, at, at the very minimum, you're talking about Nelson Riddle. Hmm. I, I was lucky to see Sinatra live twice. And of course, there's lots of him live on, on YouTube. Oh, of course. Yeah. Every single concert. Every song he said and mm-hmm. that was by the great Nelson Riddle and this is this mm-hmm. arrangement is by the great so and so yeah. He he always gave the and and the records on the front said, you know, in big letters, Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. but you know, arranged and conducted by Nelson Riddle. Now yeah, that's yeah. to me, that's the very least that could have happened with you, because everything on the record is you.
1: Well, yeah, I guess so, but in those days I think um well, I don't know but even today you probably get less credit but arrangers were very rarely credited I sometimes got my name on the record label which was quite nice you know yes. on the actual disc yeah on the on sleeves you might get a small uh, mention in the corner somewhere yeah. but uh, not blown up into the skies or anything yeah
0: and you may know that I've been fighting for years for arrangers rights which course, is of course, yeah. kind of like trying to crawl up the Matterhorn that has been previously greased uh, yeah. with with cow. Uh, yeah. But anyway, it's it's been a tough thing. And one of the things which I think should be absolutely guaranteed is a credit for arrangers on record because it's the only way we ever ever have a career. Is yeah, that somebody yeah. says, "Oh, I I heard you did that that Cliff Richard mm-hmm. arrangement. I want to use mm-hmm. you for this." But yeah, if you yeah. don't get the credit,
1: you're screwed exactly so yeah it was a only a, as, as you say by word of mouth did you get the next gig you know um, somebody yes. said oh you did a good job for me maybe why don't you try yes and, and the
0: thing. other thing of course that i've been fighting for completely vainly because nobody gives a crap is the fact that arrangers should have a royalty in the same oh, yeah. way in the same way that the guitar player gets at least some performance royalty from it And unless you're conducting, you get nothing. And you get a
1: PPL if if you're conducting, you get your PPL. But if you didn't conduct it, which is the case of quite a few of my things where they obviously spotted that one and uh, got somebody else just to wave the baton, though the guys probably didn't even need it. That's right. Somebody else got the PPL.
0: Exactly, exactly. Which is is a a tragedy of epic proportions, again. And how much do you think that impacts the life of arrangers other arrangers that you've known and yourself
1: i had uh, probably 10 15 years doing arranging only and that's why i started doing my own project right basically from that point of view the fact that there was there was very little credit um and certainly no um royalties or anything coming forth from records that had sold millions That i probably got 25 quid or whatever it might have been back in those days when i started basis of that i started my own production from there
0: i mentioned in my book also that uh, george martin uh, who i didn't get a chance to interview personally because i talked to him and he said oh i've talked about this stuff way too much talk to somebody else but but one of the things that i was quite shocked at is that for every Beatles record that he did, and of course, you know, mm. let's give some props to George Martin for being a brilliant arranger. Mm. Um, he got 15 quid. Yeah. That's, that's what he got about, for, right. for, for each, you know, for every yeah. Beatles record, that he got, that's yeah. what he got from EMI. Not only that, when he did All You Need Is Love, mm. they got sued because he used bits of other tunes at the end, like In The mm. Mood. And yeah, yeah. and and so he personally had to pay that because EMI mm-hmm. said, "Well, it's your jo- it's your arrangement. Well, You're not paying for it." Uh,
1: you oh know. my God! Yeah, yeah. I <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Well, it, I, a story I heard too about Nelson Riddle going back to Nelson Riddle, but for years working with Sinatra, he got what they called scale in the yes. you know the musicians' union. I don't know what the scale was, but it wasn't much. Crap. It took a long time before he started to get royalties.
0: Yes, it is a great tragedy, and you know, I have a little rant at the end of my book about a ranger's rights. But, you know, no matter how much I rant, and I've tried through the organization here in uh, LA called ASMAC, but I don't think anything's going to be done. Here's another thing I want to talk to you about, because you mentioned it, that you started your own thing. And boy, did yeah. you. The <laughs> Raw Band. Now, yeah, I yes. am wearing my silver jacket just in a kind of an echo of your <laughs> oh, silver the, outfits. Thing. Yeah, that I was, was, hoping piece, you that might was wear. a bit of
1: turkey foil, with a well, bit of I, turkey foil actually well, of taped on me.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, I was hoping you might wear the jacket yeah. for the interview. Yeah, but I, I've
1: lost that uh, jacket. I wish I could.
0: Have you? What a tragedy. And and that outfit with the... Um, yeah. uh, arthritis i can't
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, uh, so tell funny. me a
0: little bit about forming the band and and how that came about and that's yeah what. well
1: uh, as i say um from 68 till probably mid 80s a lot of arranging for a lot of people but um i was also jazz head at the, that was really my beginnings and never left me and i had my orchestral training from college and i thought i really would like to do some of my own music not tart up other people's music. Not that I didn't enjoy it. I loved it. I mean, I really loved arranging for lots of different artists. I met a lot of people, worked with a lot of lovely guys and and it's great fun to conduct a big orchestra. So I loved all that, but I really wanted to make my own tunes, you know, and I'd never written a pop record in my life. So... I, had, um, I was a guitarist, as I said, so obviously I could play on the the, the bass guitar, so and I've got a keyboard. I had a very nice old Hohner electric piano, one of the very first ones. It really was yes. a machine. And um, so I think I thought one day, right, um, I'll have a go, you know, um, at making a record with my experience of what I think is a pop record. So I wrote a little Thing, which was basically a brass tune on one note and i added the other bits later which is da-dun, 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 da-dun. not very original but i thought of that and put and i built it um using my guitar and my bass that i could play and the keyboard but there's not a synthesizer on it many people have said what a great synthesizer you had there but i didn't use any i didn't have a synthesizer in those days so what i did was i put the electric piano through a, a guitar pedal to get yes. that wah, wah, wah sound. Yes, it and was. That, that was purely an electric piano through a guitar pedal. And Deep. the lead voice, which was a really thin, tinny sound, again, yes. was, was an electric piano through a guitar pedal. So yes. the whole thing was built in my bedroom, uh, so I was probably one of the first bedroom bands, but um, done, done on, a, on a four-track machine, which I then took to R.G. Joe's studio in Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I know it well. Uh, yeah and um dubbed on some brass and drums and um lo and behold i got my first pop record that i thought was great but nobody else did and it took a long time to get it released i think i made it in 60, uh, 74, and it didn't get released to 77 some, somebody obviously thank goodness saw the light and put it out in the clubs and it crept up the club chart it, it became a club hit before it was yes ended, and then eventually crossed over and, and got onto radio one by miracles and was was a was a bit of a hit. So mm-hmm. then I thought, oh, this is a new direction. I carried on doing the arranging, but um I was doing my own bits as well. And I, then I got really hooked on the jazz funk thing, which was going on in London about yes. mid uh, early eighties. Yes. And I got into that because being a jazz head to to that. And then sure. the great Ray Wall is sadly no longer with us and the greater both excellent musicians, Barry D'Souza, Yes. And we formed the little jazz funk band, still called it the rock band, but that was, the, that was basically how, how the jazz funk period went. I did a, a couple of instrumentals, which also made the charts. Not, not high, but they made the charts and did very well in the clubs. I did better in clubs than I did crossover uh, charts, really. And then I thought, what about trying to put a vocal on it? So if I can make it you know, a bit more appealing across the market. Of so, course i wrote a little tune and i I didn't have a lyricist so i just made up some words like very simple come with me oh that sounds all right that'll do and i just sat in the bath one day and wrote (laughs) wrote to a track i'd written jazz funky track i didn't have a singer so my then wife who's a brilliant musician still a brilliant pianist can sight sing anything you can fly shit on the paper and i wrote these simple words and i said um Put down your duster, dear, (laughs) come through and just do this demo for me because I've got to try and find a a singer who can, um, you know, come and do it. And and she came and said, Well, I can sight sing it for you, but I can't sing, but I'll sing it as you've written it. Right. And she did. And it came out very naive, but um, very, very charming in a way. Exactly. And that was Perfume Garden, which was was quite a big um, jazz funk pop hit. And it's a bit like the Astro Gilberto story. He, in fact, she was Gilberto's wife, wasn't she? And she also was not a singer. And he tried and thought, well, that sounds great. Girl from Econema. That's how that came about. Yes. Just his wife singing very simply. And yes. that, that, that sound became the sort of sound of the rock band at the beginning.
0: When you got a record deal for yourself for this project, mm. it's kind of interesting to me that, at least my experience was that record labels typecast you he's that mm. arranger guy what is he doing mm. here asking for a record deal yeah, did yeah. you have any of that
1: yes i did but um i suppose um the crunch because it came out of left field they they weren't expecting anything like that I had a deal. I got a deal very, uh, very quickly with with Warner Chapel as a publisher. Nice. They, well, yes. you know, they do. They, they say, "Oh, we'll have that. We come with me. Some will make you rich." All yeah, yeah. But I'm a little aside. I've never had a publishing deal that ever did anything really no. at all, no. except no. wait till you get a hit and then say, "Hey, hey, great, well done. We did that for you." But yes, that's right. Yeah. So that's how the, I got sort of launched into the music biz side of things, which I'd never. Uh, touch before at all, actually, the business side.
0: And at that Not time, did you music. have to get a manager or a lawyer or what did you do?
1: It was a manager, but he was more of a guy who just helped me out because he was in the business and I didn't know anything about music business, being a musician, as, as probably most session musicians don't. They just get on with the job and don't know what goes on behind the scenes. But this yeah. guy worked for um, RCA, I think it was, right. and he he sort of handled me uh, or was the go-between between me and the record company though i had to sign a deal of course but uh, right proved fruitless but there you go right
0: right well i mean i'm you know i'm happy that it all went swimmingly for you and and the raw band became uh okay. a kind of a uh well not only did you have some hits but it also had uh, i think a, a, a an interesting influence on that whole jazz funk uh, mm movement you know it wasn't yeah, yeah. it wasn't a million miles from say shack attack or you know yeah, that kind
1: mm, of thing yeah shack attack were well, brilliant as well they're still still touring now Fourteen yes, years they are,
0: they are in fact with the last time i was in london uh, i saw bill sharp who i did a lot of work. oh yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, he's a great guy and and, and a great musician and um, yeah. i'm glad they're still going because yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it was nice music and um, yeah uh,
1: well, the Ra Band actually is going to have um, under the direction of my son, who is a brilliant musician, much better than me. Um, I believe you have a brilliant musician son as well. Yes, yeah, uh, he is. He's taking over the the project and is is preparing for a gig at the Jazz Cafe next next uh, summer, wow. where wow. We, he'll be going through the back catalogue and putting a band together and playing. Playing the old Ra band uh, catalogue, uh, so there's life in the old <laughs> band. Yeah. But he's, that's uh, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Uh, he's scoring it all out. So good on him. But I've told him it's your baby. I'm not I've never played live since a, as a jazz guitar player. Obviously, I used to play in Raleigh's and places like that. Yes, <clears throat> but I haven't ever played taking the Ra band anywhere. Right. So he's going to have a. He's got a thing on his plate there to, to deal with. But um, and that's great. That. Though. That's
0: fantastic. Yeah. Of course, just on a personal note, both of us have this wonderful uh, gift of having a son who has gone into the same field, and uh, yeah, and and right. I feel the same way. I mean, he sits down yeah. and plays, and I'm just thinking, yeah. you know, yeah. it's it yeah. blows my mind. So
1: yeah, me too. But I think you see, um, it's probably that in our day, um, when we wanted to, for instance, a copy a riffle. Or learn a tune. You had an old Grundig tape recorder and you had to run the tape back and play it over and over, try and learn it that way. Nowadays, kids got digital, click, click, and they're there. And they can. I remember seeing, watching Dan sit at the when he was a kid, where, where, you know, with a CD player playing Keith Jarrett solo or something, just going, clicking back and he'd pick it up very quickly. Yes, yes. we've tried and done that with an old tape recorder. It would take forever. And I think it's education, digital education has changed the techniques of of kids today. There's some brilliant musicians out there. Yes. And and indeed, songwriters. I know, I mean, a lot of the time I get this when I go to uh, maybe dinner parties, of, of of my generation uh, um, and that and you say oh, what do you do oh do i write pop music or i write records or write music or something and they say oh yeah they of course they don't write them like they used to and i say no they're much better now
0: <laughs> well yeah i don't. i don't think it's a matter of better or worse i just think no. that uh, you know times yeah. change the zeitgeist is what the zeitgeist is, and that's why it's yeah. the zeitgeist. Yeah. So, and every,
1: genera- every generation has its talent. I mean, sure. there are, there's some brilliant, I mean, look at Bruno Mars, for goodness sake. Right. No, brilliant what a talent there. What a talent. There. What a talent. Uh, yes. Yeah. Not very many
0: people get a chance to hear it from somebody who has worked with somebody who is infamous. And that infamous person is Phil Spector. So I'd like you to tell me as much as you can about the experience because we've touched on this subject but th- this guy i've read interviews with him but you are the only person i can ask to say what was he like to actually work with
1: it wasn't you really had very little contact with him at all i mean i met him uh, getting the instructions for the long winding road he said he wanted a orchestral arrangement for this track now Back in those days, I thought he said he wanted a, quite a large orchestra. And I sort of didn't think he wanted the size of the orchestra he did. I mean, back in my day, um, for no, normal sort of string over would probably be six violins, four violas, two cellos or something. Anyway, so I started on writing the score, but I had to do it pretty quick at that sort of level. And the uh, phone rings Hey, Richard, here, I want, I want 22 violins. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, and I want a big choir. Okay, yeah, yeah. Doesn't sound like the Beatles to me, but I'll do it. And uh, yeah, yeah, what else you got? I want a harp. And I thought, well, Well, never mind. I I like writing for big orchestras, Phil. I'll do it. And that was basically the only thing he ever communicated to me. Then we got to the session, and there were so many musicians there. (laughs) I've never seen some, and I think they ran out of music stands or something. It was in EMI number one. He went into the control room with his henchmen with their fedoras on. It was all a bit frightening. And he went in there, and I didn't even see him. He, he never came out, never. So all he would do, in the, and we did take after take after take, oh, yeah. take. Okay, give me another one. Okay, give me another one. And it went on like that until I think it was, first of all, the engineer, what was his name, bound uh, somebody Pete Bown, um said, I don't enough. I'm going home. <laughs> and so I thought, right, that's the end, I'll, I'll go home too. But Phil never really, never came out, never shook my hand just he just um stayed distant completely distant and at the end that was it i went home and never heard anymore until the record came out so really i have no experience of working directly with him
0: wow yeah from from what i've heard from other musicians who worked with him he was similar or or else he was you know completely raving and uh whacked out on various substances which are probably illegal in in uh, poland (laughs) (laughs) but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was, he yeah. was certainly a, a strange human being um mm. and uh, and also i talk about in my in my book the fact mm. that this wall of sound that he is famous for and gets credit for was actually invented by his arranger jack Nitzsche, who is one right. of my yeah. one of my yeah. favorite pop arrangers of all time yeah. because he was yeah. so innovative before was working with Phil Spector he was already using the wrecking crew
1: Hmm.
0: musicians he was already Hmm. using Gold Star Studio with their Hmm. famous echo chamber Hmm. he was also already using things like three timpani four Hmm. pianos three guitars he was doing this multiple thing and double Hmm. choirs he was doing that all if you listen he did a he did a record for uh believe it or not Doris Day which is just right, yeah. huge yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so the guy who invented the wall of sound was Jack not Phil and mm, but yeah. luckily they became they were friends you know they were mm. both as weird as each other I believe <laughs> and so Jack Nietzsche always said well I don't care who gets credit for it you know I'm happy to just be on the session so yeah, yeah. But, but it's oh, an interesting yeah. thing from an yeah. arrangement point of yeah. view yeah. first of all I love your arrangement of true love ways it's again unashamedly romantic and, and, yes. and slushy and I love that. Everybody who I know, I haven't had the pleasure of working with Cliff, but everybody who I know who's worked with him said that he's absolutely charming.
1: Absolutely charming. Yeah, we did that concert at at the Albert Hall, my one and only time I've ever stood up on that famous podium right. and conducted the London Philharmonic Orchestra, right. which was amazing. I mean, that's yes. <clears throat> you know something you never forget. On that record, he played one of my favorite arrangements of mine, which I'm proud of, is a song that I originally did with Clifford T. Ward, a very, very quiet, very shy songwriter, but brilliant. And he died young again. I'm afraid so many of these guys die so young. Anyway, this is called Up in the World. It was with just with Cliff and his voice, Cliff Richard. Uh, sorry, Cliff uh, T. Ward originally. And Cliff liked it, funnily enough, Cliff Cliff. Um, so we did it at that concert and and I re- that was really lovely to do that with the with the LPO strings, you know, nice. just just him in the voice. No, he was he was charming, absolutely charming. I did quite a few things with him back in those days. And in in all cases, very similar to McCartney, just just um, made a few suggestions, but would never override the writing.
0: And of course, also one of the finest singers in just even from yeah. a technical point of view, but from a taste point of view, uh, yep. ever. And so it's it's nice to hear him accompanied by, you know, an orchestra, so that mm. His, mm. his voice is is able to do the subtlety yeah. of it and his particular vibrato. I just love that. Mm. Yeah. Um, So tell me a little bit about what you're up to now. I see your studio is all warm. and and Yes,
1: it's the Dinosaur Studio. It's got (laughs) stuff in here that I've had for 30, 40 years. Nice. A lot of it's beginning to break down now. But you know what? It makes life for an old man very simple. Because whereas um, I went to a a Brighton Music Conference a couple of years ago with a, with a, a tech guy, a tech DJ, you know, well into all the tech stuff. And we went together, and, and the guy came up to me and he said, Hey, Richard, um, I got this machine here. It's a drum thing. And you got 35,000 drum sounds on here. <laughs> and I thought, Oh my God, how would I start the day? You know, <laughs> which drum is... I've only got two sounds now, two drum machines, if you like, which are... so it's great. I come in here and I think I'll use either this one or that one. Similar with synths. There's, I've got two or three synths that work, and I use them all the time. And but then Dan, uh, my son, Dan, came over the other day and said, Dad said, don't change it because you've got a sound here, which is everybody recognizes. If you had all the, you see, I don't use, um, I use digital recording, but I use a Akai um, DPS, uh, an actual DPS recorder, which is a digital recorder, but it's not Pro Tools or Logic or Qubit. I don't go down that route. I'm probably the only guy in the world now (laughs) who doesn't use a computer. I do use it for editing. I have right. to say that, but yeah. I don't use it for recording. I use right. digital through this old Soundcraft desk, this lovely old S5000 uh, or whatever it's called. Nice. Lovely analog sound and these bas- massive tannoy speakers and a digital recorder. And I get a really nice big sound out of it. But I'm not using Pro Tools or like anybody else. Well, good for you. And, yeah. and uh, I am
0: very sad that... You know my old studio i sold all that stuff and and old equipment is really going for serious cash yeah, now because sure yeah, because yeah, you yeah. can't get some of these units and modules oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. anyway it's yeah. it's great that you're doing that and i look forward yeah. to hearing your yeah. new
1: stuff well in fact next year we i've got a new publishing deal yeah another one publishing management deal starting actually on the first of january i'm glad well, nice what they do. yeah it should be good but they are going to do um, a box set um of, of all the back catalog um so all the old stuff is coming out again plus remixes and all that kind of stuff so i've got stuff to keep me going you know till the day i die
0: well let's not discuss <laughs> that right here and now because this is radio richard and we and nobody dies on radio Nobody dies. could be the worst. <laughs> well Richard thank you so much for Richard being on Radio Richard because it's been it's been a great fun thing and you've answered a lot of the things that I've been wondering about for years and I hope we'll keep in touch and when the when the new album comes out let us know
1: I certainly shall and thank you for having me Richard yeah we're Richards we're two Richards that's right exactly
0: Radio Richard is a unique collection of my interviews with fellow creators, revealing not only how they do that voodoo that they do so well, but why. So please, like, share, subscribe, and donate, so I can keep this channel going and give you this great content. Radio Richard. Be informed. Be amazed. Be inspired.